Appreciate everyone being back again tonight. We're grateful for your presence. Appreciate uh, those who've led us in worship tonight and a good way that uh, people have uh, participated. It's very encouraging to begin the week this way and uh, meeting together and worshiping together, encouraging each other together. You might, if you were to sit down with someone who really didn't know very much about the Bible, maybe new to Bible study, but, but eager to learn, you might turn to the very beginning, turn to the table of contents to you, with you, in your Bible. If you turn to the table of contents, what you would see is that the Bible is divided up into two big parts. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. Now, those of us who've been studying the Bible for a long time, we, we, we already know that. But there are lots of people in the world today who, who may not know that at all. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. People may have heard of the Old Testament and New Testament, but may not be very familiar with it at all. The Old Testament is the larger of the two sections. I think about three times the size of the New Testament. It contains 39 books. Begins with Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and of course it ends with Malachi. The New Testament begins with Matthew, with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and of course ends with the book of Revelation. The Old Testament was written over a period of about a thousand years. And so from the time of Moses, who wrote the first books of the Old Testament, until the last book of the Old Testament covers about a thousand years. The New Testament was written over about 50 years. The Old Testament begins with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The New Testament begins with the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, which is interesting because the central figure in the story of the Bible doesn't appear until about three-fourths of the way through. Now, there are indications that he's coming earlier than that, but Jesus' story is told in the New Testament, and beginning in the, the way our books are arranged, uh, the book of Matthew. The Old Testament focuses on Israel. The New Testament focuses on the disciples of Jesus, the church. Now, the two are related to each other. They're not just two strictly independent works. Old Testament independent of New Testament, New Testament independent with the Old Testament, no connection between them, never the twain shall meet. That, that's not the way it is. They, they do tie together, and there is continuity between them. Our question then is, how do they relate to each other? How are they connected to each other? How should, uh, should we appeal to each of them equally? Should we appeal to the Old Testament in the same way that we appeal to the New Testament? And so, should we use them and appeal to them equally? How do they apply to us? And so those are just some of the questions that we might entertain if we were sitting down and talking with someone who is new to Bible study. What are the two Testaments about? How do they relate to each other? Are they equally binding on us today? And all, all those kind of fundamental questions. And so tonight I want to talk about the Old Testament in particular in, in this way. Just raise and answer, ask and answer, some questions about the Old Testament. So let's, let's think about that. The first question is this. Is the Old Testament the Word of God? 
And so you might think, well, yeah, we know the New Testament is God's Word. It contains the words of Jesus and Jesus' apostles. Is the Old Testament the Word of God? And the short answer to that is, of course, yes. All Scripture is inspired of God. That's what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is inspired of God. The Old Testament, of course, qualifies as Scripture. And so, yes, it is, in fact, the Word of God. Now, there are several, plenty claims in the Old Testament itself to this effect. And so, here's just a, a sample. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And then he tells us what the Lord has said. The Lord speaks. That's the way Isaiah introduces that, that section of uh, his, his teaching. And that kind of thing is repeated over and over and over, especially in the prophets. Here's another case in point. The book of Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Jeremiah says, Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and, and so forth. If you skip down a few verses in Jeremiah chapter 1, you see uh, verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? Verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, in verse 13, The word of the Lord came to me a second time. Well over a thousand times in the Old Testament, we find those kinds of statements. The Lord said, The word of the Lord said, the word of the Lord came to me saying. And so within the Old Testament itself, we find these kinds of statements, which the writers claim to be speaking the word of the Lord. Just one more illustration of that. Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 3, very similar. On the fifth month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, and said, you know, and so the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel. So that's an emphatic statement, isn't it? So what Ezekiel is teaching is the word of the Lord. But not only does the Old Testament claim to be the word of God itself, the New Testament claims that the Old Testament is the word of God. And so let's look at a few passages that would support that, that idea. From the New Testament, talking about the Old Testament, saying that it is, in fact, the Word of God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. 2 Peter 1, verse 20. But, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, what I understand Peter to be saying is this, that Scripture, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and, and, uh, that, that's not the result of a man looking at current events, interpreting those events, and then writing down his own interpretation of what he sees going on in the world. That's, that's not where the Word of God comes from. It doesn't come from the human being himself. And he goes on to explain, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here's a New Testament writer talking about the Old Testament prophets, and he says they spoke by, the, they spoke by God. They, they were moved by the Holy Spirit and thus spoke from God. Now, we talked about 2 Timothy chapter 3 earlier. We referred to that passage and are giving our basic answer to this question. But you remember, again, this, this would apply to all Scripture, in, including the Old Testament. 
2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. The idea, of course, is it's breathed by God. Just like the Holy Spirit was moving the prophets to write. That's the idea, that the Spirit is is moving, is inspiring these men, is God breathes, sort of breathing into them the message that they record. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and so forth. And so here's a New Testament writer, the Apostle Paul. He's looking back at the Old Testament. He may include the New Testament as well in that passage, as the New Testament is Scripture. But at least the Old Testament is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit is the origin of, for example, the Psalms. Look at this passage in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew 22 and verse 43. There Jesus is speaking, and He says, they're asking Him several questions, and so at this point Jesus says, okay, I've got a question that I want to ask you. And verse 43 says to them, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's a quotation from the first verse of the 110th Psalm. But look how Jesus introduces that. How, did, uh, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? And so David is being moved by the Spirit to write this. Jesus himself suggests that the Old Testament is the Word of God, is the product of the Spirit's inspiration. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Here again, the words of Jesus, this time uh, referring to a different passage, but still referring to the Old Testament nonetheless. They'd come to Jesus, they're asking Him why His disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And He says to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? God said, Honor your father and mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But, but Jesus doesn't attribute that to Moses. Of course, God reveals that through Moses. And Moses, of course, is called the Law of Moses, in fact. But in this, in this case, Jesus says, God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, What I have that would help you has been given to God. He's not to honor his father and mother. And by this, you've invalidated the Word of God. So Jesus is referring to these commandments as the Word of God. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so here he's referring to these Old Testament passages as the commandment of God, the Word of God. God said... And so, is the Old Testament the Word of God? Well, the prophets suggest that, that it is. The Word of the Lord came to me saying. The New Testament writers, looking back at the Old Testament, say it is. All Scripture is inspired by God. But th these prophets wrote, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, even Jesus says, these are the commandments of God. What are the implications of that? If the Old Testament is the Word of God, well, well so what? Well, that implies that what the Old Testament says is true. If it's the Word of God, well then, it's true, isn't it? God, God doesn't speak what is not true. <laughs> Titus chapter 1, for example, in verse 2 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. And so God would not intentionally 
tell us something that's not true. He can't do that. He can't lie. God is not mistaken about his facts. You know, I get mistaken. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm often confused, you know, to tell you the truth. But, but God is not confused. God's not mistaken. God's not misinformed and repeat inaccurate information. What God says is true. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is true. And so if the Old Testament is God's word, well then what the Old Testament says is true. Now we might be mistaken in our understanding of it, our explanation of it, our interpretation of it, but what God's word said, including the Old Testament, is true. A second implication is that the Old Testament speaks with authority. And so human beings can't just set it aside because we don't like it. Well, I don't like what that says. I, I just think they're wrong, you know. Or, I don't like what Moses said about this. I'm just going to reject it. We can't handle the Word of God that way because it has the authority of God inherently in it. Jesus himself says, John chapter 10 and verse 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. And so this is a quotation from the Old Testament, the 82nd Psalm in verse 6. The, the Scripture can't be broken. The Old Testament Scripture cannot be broken. It's authoritative. We can't just set it aside. And so the Old what the Old Testament says is true. It can't simply be rejected or disregarded because we don't like it. And so when the Bible says, when the Old Testament says, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's true. The Lord is one. Now that's said in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. But see, Deuteronomy is the Word of God, and what it says is true. God is one. We can look at several, many, many other statements in the, New Test or the Old Testament that talk about there being one God and there is no other. Those are true. That's, that's true. What the Old Testament says about God is true. If you go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 34, you'll find this statement beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud, stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Incidentally, that would be true, wouldn't it? Now, what the Old Testament says about these events that took place must have actually taken place. Okay? But then he goes on, the Lord descended in the cloud, stood there with him. He called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now that's true, isn't it? That's the Word of God. God is describing Himself. And He says that He's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. How do I know that's true? It's in the Word of God. What God says is is true. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14, there the question is asked, the rhetorical question is asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord is, we say, omnipotent. He has all power. Now you can establish that from the Old Testament because what the Old Testament says is true. And so nothing is too hard for the Lord. And when you turn over to the Psalms, and look at the 139th Psalm, we find out that the Lord not only is omnipotent, but omnipresent. Verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold on me. All of those statements are true. How, how do we know they're true? They're found in the Word of God. They're found in Scripture. Is the Old Testament the Word of God? Yes. All Scripture is inspired by God. And if it's the Word of God, well then, it's true. Second question. What's the Old Testament about? You know, just imagine you were uh, new to Bible study and you, you pick up this book. You've heard about it all your life. You know some people that read it diligently and try to order their life after what they read in the Bible. So I'm going to read that. I, and you pick it up and start reading in Genesis. And you know, what's all this about? What's the Old Testament about? Well, the Old Testament is about God's relationship with Israel. All right, so Israel is the name given in the Old Testament to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. So Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. And then Isaac has descendants and it becomes the nation of Israel. Now the, the term Israel or the name Israel first appears when God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Genesis 35 verses 9 and 10. We won't go over there. That's just uh, to kind of uh, provide that information. And so when we say that the Old Testament is about God's relationship to Israel, who are we talking about? We're talking about the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Now Abraham has other children other than Isaac, but Israel develops from Abraham through his son Isaac. The Israelites are also called in the Bible the Hebrews. Same group of people, just a, a different name. And also called the Jews. And so the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites, all three different names for the same group of people. Well, you might by this point be asking, and the person you're studying with, teaching him the Bible, might ask, why does God have a special relationship with Israel? Well, the opening chapters of Genesis explain. God created the world, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. He created the man and the woman. And God created everything. It was good. Everything that God created with, was good. But it wasn't long until man began to transgress and rebel against God. So God placed man and woman in the Garden of Eden and gave them access to everything they needed. God also had a tree in the Garden of Eden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God imposed a law on the man and woman, told them, you can eat of every tree in the garden except this one. And so they were forbidden to eat of this fruit. And of course, Genesis chapter 3, the woman is tempted. She sees the food. It's, you know, it's a delight to the eyes. It's desirable to make one wise and so forth. And so she takes it in transgression of God's law. She takes it and eats it. She gives it to her husband and he eats. And sin is introduced then into the world. You think maybe men would have learned their lesson, but, but things get worse. And as you trace out the story of the Bible in Genesis, the following chapters of Genesis, you'll find that things really only get worse. And you come to Genesis chapter 6, and things are so bad that God decides that He's just going to wipe it all out and start all over with Noah, who is a righteous man, and, and his family. And so the flood comes upon the world in judgment against the corruption and immorality and ungodliness that had developed in the world. Well, Noah comes out of the ark on the other side of the flood. 
Now it's in a world in which all the sin has sort of been washed away by the flood. We have a new opportunity, a second chance to get it right. But things don't go very well. Noah himself falls into sin and you find the population becoming involved in other things. And, but this time, instead of God saying, okay, I'm going to wipe everyone out, he says, you know, I'm going to bless the world. And so he chooses Abraham, a man named Abraham, and he tells Abraham that I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you, through your seed, through your descendant. And so you see that in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land that I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I'll curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Go on a little bit further. Verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I'll give this land, the land of Canaan. Now that's a pivotal point in the story of the Bible. Now, earlier in the days of Noah, God had destroyed the world because of sin. But now what God says, you know, I'm going to bring blessing into the world. I'm going to bring blessing into the world through this man, Abraham. And one of his descendants, I'm going to bless all families of the earth. All of these people who have gone into sin, I'm going to give them an opportunity to receive my blessing through this one who will come through the descendants of Abraham. So God promises Abraham three things. I'm going to make you a great nation. See that in verses 1 through 3? I'm going to give that nation a land to live in. You see that in verse 7? And in your seed, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The seed promise. Now the rest of the Old Testament is simply an elaboration on, on those promises. That's the way that, that we can look at it. The nation promise is fulfilled... By the time we get through the book of Genesis into the early chapters of the book of Exodus, the descendants of Abraham have multiplied and grown and developed into the people of Israel. They're held in bondage in Egypt as slaves, but they come up out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses and find their way under the guidance of God to Mount Sinai where they're given a law. And so you've got a group of people, the Israelites, being led by Moses, God is ultimately their king, and they have a law given to them. So there you have the fulfillment of the nation promise. Now, the land promise, remember God tells Abraham, I'm give your descendants this land, the land of Canaan. Now, the land promise is fulfilled by the time we get to Joshua. So you turn over to Joshua, there are several statements to the effect that they entered into the land and they possessed it. They possessed all of it. For example, let me look at Joshua chapter 21, verse 43. The Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. Verse 45, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. It all came to pass. And so, the land promise is fulfilled. Now what about that third promise, the seed promise? In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, that is a reference to, uh, that's a reference to Christ. What we have in the rest of the Old Testament is God working with Israel, preparing them, getting them ready, making them into the kind of people to receive His Son when God sends Him into the world, to receive Him, and then 
follow him themselves and tell the rest of the world about the redemption that's found in him. It takes, it takes them a long time. <laughs> Israel is kind of a stubborn people. They become not the holy nation that God intended for them to be. They become more and more like the nations around them. They worship the gods of the nations around them. They begin to behave like the nations around them. And God sends them prophet after prophet after prophet, trying to persuade them to become a holy nation and uh, to become people ready to receive the Messiah that God promised to send into the world. Eventually, of course, they go into captivity. They come out of captivity. Their infatuation with false gods is, is, is solved. You know, in Jesus' day, he has a lot of things to say about Israel, but he never does say, and besides this, you're still worshiping those idols. They've learned their lesson about idolatry. And, and so finally they become the people that God can use sends his Messiah into the world. And so, what's the Old Testament about? The Old Testament is about God's relationship with Israel as he prepares to bring his or send his Messiah into the world. And so, uh, we might say that in the Old Testament, God reveals himself to Israel through his actions and through his word so that they might know him. And so God is sending his Savior into the world to a people who already know Him. All right? And so we see His work with them to get them to know Him through the Old Testament. He reveals His law to them through Moses. It's called the Law of Moses, especially found in Exodus through Deuteronomy. And so the law is producing in Israel the kind of holy people, or should be, that's the aim of it, to produce, make them into the kind of holy people ready to receive the Messiah. And it reveals information concerning the coming Christ to them so they might recognize Him. And so periodically in the Old Testament we'll find statements about the coming Messiah. Deuteronomy chapter 18, He's going to be a prophet like Moses. 2 Samuel 7, He's going to be a descendant of David. We already know He's going to be a descendant of Abraham. Isaiah 7, born of a virgin. Uh, Micah chapter 5, born in, in Bethlehem. And so, and so all these glimpses into the coming Messiah found in the Old Testament. And so, what's the Old Testament all about? It's about God's relationship with Israel. It records His work with Israel. It records His law for Israel, the prophets He sent to Israel, and, and so forth, as He's preparing them for the coming Messiah. All right, third question. <laughs> You know, how were sins atoned for under the law, under, under the Old Testament? How, how were sins atoned for? Now, we said above that the Savior would come and make atonement for sin, but that didn't happen for many years after the promise was made. And so, talk about that first promise to, to Abraham and your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Messiah would come and make atonement for sin. That was ultimately God's plan. That didn't happen for a long time after the promise was made. And so, what did they do about sin in the meantime? How was atonement made for sin until the Messiah came? Well, in the law of Moses, we find that God instructed Israel to put into practice a rather complex system of animal sacrifices to deal with the problem of sin. And so, in the Old Testament, say that again, God instructed Israel to institute a rather complex system. It is pretty complicated. 
Go back and, and read about it. Books of, Book of Leviticus, for example. Pretty complex system of animal sacrifices to deal with the sin problem. And we won't talk about this in great detail. That'd take a long time. But these sacrifices consisted of bulls and goats and lambs and birds. They would be slaughtered and their blood would be shed. Now, now, now why is that? Well, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 17, you'll find that the life is in the blood. And so when a person sins, he, he's deserving of the forfeiture of his life. He forfeits his life. That's the consequence of his sin. But in the Old Testament, God accepts the life of an animal. Now, it couldn't be just any animal, though a certain animal prescribed by God. And, and his lifeblood, we say sometimes, is, is given on behalf of and in the place of the person who sinned. And so, you look at Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 10, for example. Well, let's skip down to verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And so, in the Old Testament, how is sin atoned for? What do they do about the problem of sin? Well, God instituted a system of animal sacrifice. The sinner would bring an animal to be sacrificed to make atonement for his sin. Now, to bring it to a special class of men who are authorized to make these sacrifices. So, not just anybody can make a sacrifice. So, bring the sacrifice to a priest, a descendant of Aaron, and the priest would offer the sacrifice on his behalf. And there was a high priest who was taken from among the priests. The sacrifices were to be offered only at the place where God put His name. That's the way it's expressed in the Old Testament, where God put His name. And so you couldn't just make these sacrifices anywhere you might live. No, they were to be made in a particular place, at the temple, at the, the tabernacle. The precise procedure was to be followed by the one bringing the sacrifice and the priest who offered it on his behalf. And so, if I committed a sin, wanted to offer a sacrifice for my sin, I would take it to the priest, I would follow a certain procedure, and the priest would follow a certain procedure. I told you it was complicated, rather complex system. One day every year, a special ceremony was held and special sacrifices were made to make atonement for the sins of the nation. That day is called the Day of Atonement. And you read about it in some detail, in quite a bit of detail, Leviticus chapter 16. Now, the words atonement and forgiveness are, are used in connection with these Old Testament sacrifices. For example, Leviticus chapter 4 verse 27 discusses the sin offering and it says, If anyone of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, he becomes guilty. If a sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female, without defect. For his sin which he has committed, lay his hand on the head of the sin offering. There's that procedure I was talking about. Slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. There's that procedure of the priest I was talking about. And all the rest of his blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. It shall go on and on. And then at the end of verse 31, thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he'll be forgiven. And so the words atonement and forgiveness are used in connection with these animal sacrifices. 
Now, the New Testament explains that the blood of bulls and goats cannot actually take away human sin. Now, that stands to reason, I think, the blood of bulls and goats. How could the blood of an animal atone for the sin of a human being? You know, that, and so that that's sort of stands to reason, I think. But we can, we can read that statements to that effect. For example, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And uh, specifically, uh, you could look at uh, verse, verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so, and it goes on and discusses that. The book of Hebrews discusses that at length, in fact. The, the Old Testament sacrifices were offered by men of faith in obedience to the commands of God given to them. So you have men of faith obeying the commands that God had given to them. God, who knew that Christ would come and adequately atone for sin, forgave them on the basis of their obedient faith, knowing that Christ would come and atone for sin. And so the sacrifice of Christ really kind of works backward, doesn't it? And atones for, actually atones for the sins of the people under the Old Covenant. And so again, let me say that again. In the Old Testament, you have men acting in faith, obeying the command that God gave them. They didn't obey the commands that God gave somebody else, obey the commands that God gave them. And on the basis of that, that faithful obedience, God, who knows Christ is coming and will shed His blood, which will adequately atone for all sin, forgives their sin and counts it as atoned for. The Old Testament system of animal sacrifice was sort of a prophecy in action. Maybe that's the way we can, we can describe it, a kind of a prophecy in action. They looked ahead to the perfect sacrifice of Christ as God worked with Israel to teach them about sin, its penalty, and the cost of atonement. And so just think about that. You know, think about all the blood that was shed for sin. That's animal blood, but all the blood, what a high price sin incurred. What the cost of sin. And so, in this preparatory stage of the Old Testament, God is working with Israel, teaching them about the terrible nature of sin, its penalty, and the cost of atonement. So that's what the Old Testament is, is about. And then our last question is, well, is the Old Testament binding on the world today? Well, the Old Testament itself looks forward to the time when there will be a New Testament. Or we could say it this way, the Old Covenant, God's agreement with Israel, the Old Covenant, and uh, the prophets that God sent to Israel while He's working with them, they look forward to a time when there will be a New Covenant, a New Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31 is a good passage to illustrate. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of G Judah. He says, now it's not going to be like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. But my law within them, on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And I'll forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. 
So the Old Testament itself looks forward to a time when there will be a New Testament, a New Covenant. Now this very passage, Jeremiah chapter 31, is quoted at length in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, making this very point. This is a long argument about the setting aside of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the bringing in of the New Covenant. This passage, Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, again, quoted at length in in the process of that argument here in Hebrews chapter 8. Well, the argument continues on into chapter 10, where he says in verse 9, he takes away the first, takes away the first covenant, that he might establish the second covenant. And so, the author is proving the point that the old covenant with its sacrifices, its priesthood, its temple, its law, its institutions, its rituals, its practices, all have been replaced by a new covenant. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. Well, there are several other passages in the New Testament that make the same point. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, I don't have much time here, so we'll just try to cover this very quickly. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Verse 7, If the ministry of death in letters, in letters engraved in stone... Well, that's the Old Covenant, isn't it? Remember the Ten Commandments engraved in stone? He calls it here the ministry of death. Uh, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. When Moses went up into the, uh, when, when Moses went up and spoke with God, he would come back, his face would, because he's been in the presence of the glory of God, it's almost like his skin absorbed that glory and it, it began to shine. It, 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 uh, and, and the Israelites couldn't bear to look at it. But eventually it faded. And he goes on to say, how, how will the ministry of the Spirit, now that's the New Testament, fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation, that's the Old Testament, has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. And so the, ultimately the idea is that the old covenant fades away. It passes away. And it, re, it is replaced with a much more glorious covenant, the new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit as he describes it. Well, let's look at another passage, Galatians chapter 4. In, in Galatians chapter 4, now Paul is dealing with the matter of circumcision, arguing that it's no longer required. It was a chief feature of the Old Testament law. But he says the law has been cast out. In this passage, Galatians chapter 4, and beginning in about verse 21, Paul is drawing on the story of Sarah and Hagar. Now both of these women had sons by Abraham. But Sarah had a son named Isaac, the son of promise. Hagar had a son by Abraham whose name was Ishmael. And he was not the child of promise. And Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. Now the point that Paul makes here is he says, you know, Sarah and Isaac, they're like the new covenant. And Hagar and Ishmael, they're like the old covenant. And the old covenant, he says, 
has been sent, sent away. And uh, again, you can see that Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21 and verse 30. What does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we're not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. And so he's drawing that analogy. He's making his point by using that passage and drawing an analogy on it. But the upshot of it is that the old covenant has been cast away and replaced with a new covenant. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul argues that the law of Moses was a barrier to unity between Jew and Gentile. But now Christ has broken down the barrier. He's broken down that wall, that, that barrier between Jew and Gentile. How did he do that? Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He's abolished the law of commandments contained. Well, that's, that's the old covenant. He's abolished that. And of course, in its place, there is a, a new covenant. And then back in the book of Galatians chapter 3, Paul argues that the old covenant was a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. In, in, this, in this passage, he's discussing the temporary nature of the law of Moses, which is the law of the old covenant. And the law was given to highlight the terrible nature of sin, demonstrate the need of a Savior who's Christ. But now that Christ has come and people are justified on the basis of faith in Christ, well, the schoolmaster who is there to bring us to Christ, the schoolmaster is no longer needed. And so it's set aside. And so you see that in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Look at verse 24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. And so our question is, is the Old Testament binding on the world today? Well, the answer is the old covenant has been taken away and a new covenant established. And so all these passages, the ones we've looked at, show that the old covenant with its practices, sacrifices, regulations, laws, rituals, ceremonies, has been taken away and replaced by a new and better covenant, one that's accessible to all people. We had to be born a descendant of Abraham to participate in that first covenant, but the new covenant is available to everyone who believes in Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And so understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament, that, it, that's important. Misunderstanding leads to mistakes. And people make mistakes because they fail to understand the temporary nature of the Old Covenant. And so we want to avoid mistakes as much as possible. What do we said? The Old Testament is the Word of God, and so what it says is true. And so when the Bible says in the Old Testament there is one God, well, that, that's true. When it says that He's gracious and compassionate and full of loving kindness, that, that's true. <laughs> and, and so what it says about God, it, it, it speaks the truth. The Old Testament describes God's experiences developing Israel in preparation for the sending of Christ into the world. The Old Testament was temporary covenant with its laws and rituals and practices and institutions. And these have been set aside and a new covenant established, which is accessible to all people. So there's a, just a few questions 
about the Old Testament. It's important for us to understand the relationship between the Old and the New. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we stand in amazement before you at your great plan of salvation, the plan that you had in mind even before the world began, and that you put into place, to put into motion, really with the introduction of sin into the world. You've revealed to us the details of that plan. In Genesis chapter 12, with the selection of Abraham, and you promised that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We understand that's fulfilled in Christ. You see, you see the working of your plan through history, through the nation of Israel, how you worked with them and uh, taught them, even corrected them in getting them prepared to receive your son when you sent him into the world. We simply, Father, stand in awe of the way that you have uh, developed this plan, put it in motion, and brought it to fruition in Christ. We're so thankful, Father, that you've done that, that you've revealed these things to us. Help us, Father, to read and to understand, and help us to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, to be, a faith, be faithful disciples of His, to walk in His footsteps. We know, Father, where those footsteps lead. They lead to eternal life. And so, Father, help us to walk in them faithfully and loyally. Father, help us to be good students of your word. Help us to learn what you would have us to know. Uh, help us, Father, to allow that word to sink into our hearts and to shape and mold our character into what, it, what you want it to be. Again, Father, we are in awe of you, of your great wisdom and your great might, and that you've made these things available to us. Help us, Father, to live according to these things each and every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you're not a Christian,